A world-famous expert on pollinators once said, you can never tell with bees. That was none other than Winnie the Pooh. Okay, so he's a fictional character who really likes honey. But there's a grain of truth in what he said that's actually relevant today. Over the last dozen or so years, there have been many dramatic warnings of a pending bee apocalypse that will threaten a significant part of the human food supply. Although this apocalypse has not materialized and bee populations are healthy in most regions, that doesn't mean it isn't a topic of importance. Back in 2006 in the U.S., there was a phenomenon that was named colony collapse disorder in which many hives of bees mysteriously failed to survive the winter. Much of the blame in the media and among activists focused on a particularly widely used class of agricultural insecticides called neonicotinoids, or neonics for short. And while that focus made sensational news and was great fundraising efforts for environmental groups, it's really not that simple. And that's why I like to cite Winnie the Pooh's acknowledgement that there is some uncertainty and complexity when it comes to bees. In a future podcast, I try to really drill down into that, but today I I just kind of want to do some background about bees because it's a really interesting component of the human food production system. Now, as humans, we really enjoy the phenomenon of flowers with a huge range of diversity of many species. They're beautiful and they're various distinctive scents. But these flowers are really part of a prehistoric business deal between plants and various animals that play the role of pollinators. The pollinators regularly mix and match the plants' genes so that those plants can evolve and and adapt to changes in climate or pests or or other challenges that come up. Pollen is the male contribution to a plant's mating process, and pollinators are organisms that help spread it around to the female part of the flower called pistils. Now, not all plants need help with their mating. In fact, some of the most widely cultivated plants by humans don't actually need any bees to help them out. That would be including things like wheat and corn and soybeans and grapes. However, those kind of plants don't get quite as much genetic mixings as the ones that actually employ the outside help. And for the crops that do need pollination help, honeybees are the most familiar actors. There are others involved, like bumblebees, and and there are certain bats and birds that are important for pollination of certain species. But anyway, it's It's a really good business transaction between the pollinators and the plants that need them. The plants get the genetic mixing, and the pollinators get a a sugary source of energy called nectar, and quite a few of them also use the protein source, which is in the pollen. European honeybees are the most familiar species that humans domesticated thousands of years ago. And humans have since moved European honeybees all around the world to help pollinate orchards and other crops. That means, effectively, that these bees are exotic, introduced, and a human-dependent species in much of their modern range. For instance, there were no honeybees like this in North America until the colonists came. And European honeybees are what are called Q-social insects. 
which is essentially a community ruled by one queen who lays all the eggs, and there's a relatively small number of male drones whose job is, only job is, to mate with the queen and occasionally with the queens from other colonies. And the rest of the hive is made up of functionally sterile female worker bees. The people who tend the bees are called beekeepers, and what they do is provide hives, which are typically wooden box homes, where the bees can set up their honeycombs and their stations from which to let the queen's eggs develop. The beekeepers often transport these hives from place to place as a business, where farmers pay for the pollination services that the bees provide. And the beekeepers also harvest some of the honey made from the plant nectar, and that's another source of their income. To keep the hives going when in transit or at times of year when there's really no ready source of flowers, beekeepers might supplement the hive's diet with an alternative source of sugar or protein. Having an organized community, bees are able to help take care of each other. There's even a division of labor where some of the workers go out to gather the pollen and nectar, some tend the eggs and the young, some guard the hive from intruders, and some actually just focus on gathering water to drink in the summer to cool the hive. The members of the hive communicate with each other uh, based on various dances that, that code for certain messages. So the societal aspect of bee biology is a plus for the species, but it can also be a negative. There are several different diseases and parasites that can spread through a hive much more easily than that would occur between solitary insects. And there's a human element that plays into this too. During certain times of year, a huge number of the commercial hives are moved to the same region. And this relocation of hives, it's a good opportunity for diseases and parasites to spread from hive to hive kind of like uh, STDs that are spread on uh, spring break for college students. Around February in the U.S., something like 85% of the American beehives are taken to California to help pollinate the more than million acres of almonds that grow there. That becomes a great opportunity for the pests of bees, particularly one called the varroa mite. Now, this mite not only latches onto and sucks fluid out of the bees, it's a really gross-looking thing, it also vectors certain virus diseases. Most of the bee experts I've talked to think that the varroa mite and the viruses that it spreads are really way bigger issue for uh, bees and, and the survival of bees than anything like insecticides. Well, this actually might become less of an issue in the future. Because the almond industry is progressively planting some new cultivars or varieties that are self-fertile, which means they don't actually need bees to pollinate them or, or they need a lot less bees. And although it has been found that by bringing in some bumblebees, fewer hives are needed as well. The interaction between these different kinds of bees induces the honeybees to jump back and forth between the rows, and, and actually you end up not needing as many bees. Now, there's another complication to this bee story. The European honeybees transferred quite easily to new homes in North America, but they didn't do as well in Central and South America. So in the 1950s, a Brazilian scientist named Warwick Kerr brought over a species of bee from southern Africa that he hoped would breed with 
the European bees and make for a breed that would be better adapted to that region. Now, he knew that this new species was uh, quite a bit more aggressive than the European bees. Yeah, I mean, our European bees will sometimes sting us, but they're not usually not so inclined. His hope was that he could combine the adaptation for southern latitudes with some relative safety like we get from the European bees. Unfortunately, some of those new bees escaped from the place where they were being studied and started to breed with wild populations of other bees, and they became a lot more dangerous. And these Africanized bees have since spread throughout Central and South America and and actually into the southern reaches of the U.S. In 1974, there was a movie produced called The Swarm, and it, it was a horror flick imagining how huge swarms of acronized bees could start attacking cities in Texas and elsewhere. Now, fortunately, that scenario has never played out in the non-Hollywood world, and the threat from these more aggressive bees seems to have sort of simmered down over time. There are a few more wrinkles in the story. Even when so many bees are taken to California to pollinate almonds, they can usually find various wildflowers growing in the surrounding hills. However, when there was a long, prolonged drought in California, the the bees didn't really have any other flower options, and that lack of diversity in their diet wasn't good for the health of the colonies. Also, in the heartland of the U.S., the really dominant crops like soybeans, corn, and wheat are not really pollinator-friendly. There are, however, a number of programs supported by botanical gardens, nonprofit groups, and by the crop protection industry to intentionally plant pollinator-friendly plants along the field borders or other suitable sites. You can listen to one of my earlier Pop Agriculture podcasts uh, to learn about prairie strips, which is based on the intentional planting of the original flora of the tall grass prairie ecosystem that preceded our agricultural development. And it helps stabilize the soil, prevent erosion, capture fertilizers that might also get into the waterways, and provides a more diverse habitat, which is good for both our domesticated bees and other pollinators. Now back to the issue of diseases. As I said, most experts feel as though the varroa mite and the viruses it spreads are the single biggest problem for bees. In regions where the beekeeping community has managed to prevent that pest from getting a foothold, bee populations have never seen the kind of disruptions that occurred elsewhere. There are other diseases that impact pollinators as well. One is a bacterial malady that's called foul brood. And the standard practice, if a hive gets infected, is to burn it. And professional beekeepers bemoan the fact that many amateur beekeepers will not do that. And they're trying to be nice to their bees, but they're actually endangering other bees in the neighborhood. So in conclusion, there are lots of complex issues between people and the bees we domesticated so long ago. There are also complex issues surrounding the wild species of pollinators. But actually, there's really no looming bee apocalypse. If you want, you can learn more about bees. I'd suggest that you visit a blog called scientificbeekeeping.com. It's written by an expert named Randy Oliver, and and Randy was kind enough to, to review this podcast script for me. 
Paying attention to the many issues for bees and doing more research is clearly a good thing. And it's much better than just having to say, you never know, like Winnie the Pooh. And we can take the right steps then to protect our important little insect friends. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.